Welcome to the DGR Podcast. I'm your host, David Gray. Hello everyone, David here. Welcome back to the DGR Podcast. I hope you're all doing well. This is episode number 44 and I'm joined by a great guest. I'm joined by Harry Simington. Harry is based in Melbourne, Australia. He is an athletic performance coach. He works with a lot of athletes in various different sports, including Australian rules football, as we call it in Ireland, cricket, basketball and tennis. We chatted a lot today about if you if you look at Harry's work, you see him working on like some kind of running drills with perturbations and working on talking about like working on different attractors and stuff like that. Some of you might be familiar with some of the language through maybe some of Franz Bosch's work and, and through others. So that's kind of what we dived into today. Some of the attractors of running and not just running, they kind of apply to a lot most field-based sports, I would say, or court-based sports, to be honest. Um, so we talked a little bit about kind of motor learning um, and dived into them attractors, cross-extensor reflex. Uh, Harry spoke about head stability and how important that is and how you might train that. Um, swing leg retraction, different deep dives into some of those attractors. And I found it really interesting and some really practical information there as well from Harry. So um, I think you're really going to like the podcast. And if you do, don't forget to give it a share. It will be great. Actually, not just a share. Go and click like or click five stars on Spotify or Apple or maybe leave a review, something like that. That's your little bit of homework for today's episode is to share the episode and maybe leave a, a five star review as well. So Without further ado, here's Harry, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Okay, Harry, thank you for joining me. Want to give us a little bit of a an intro? Yeah, thanks for first off, thanks for having me, David. Appreciate it, and I was uh, yeah very humbled when you when you reached out. It's um yeah probably you must be scraping around for for guests if you're coming to me. So no, no I appreciate the uh, appreciate the invite. Um, yeah, so about me, I'm a I'm a uh, athletic performance coach based in uh, Melbourne, Australia. I, I work predominantly with uh, Aussie rules athletes, so AFL um, and AFLW down here in, in Australia. Um, and I do a bit of a uh, bit of work with um, with fast bowlers in cricket as well. So that's sort of my, my main two sports. Um, and yeah, sort of do everything from um, uh, movement assessments to uh, strength and conditioning, injury prevention, um, all sorts of. Um, all sorts of fields, but I guess at the end of the day, whether I'm trying to help an athlete uh, move better or, um, or or reduce injuries, it's I'm sorry, perform better or, or reduce injuries, it's always through um, through improved movement. So um, yeah, I've got a bit of a bit of a passion for uh, biomechanics, uh, skill acquisition, motor learning, um, and a um, bit of uh, I'm a bit of a, a sport nuffy as well. I'll um, I'll happily admit that. <laughs> No, I'm not. Um, I'm not scraping the the barrel for guests. I'm always just on the lookout for interesting people with interesting ideas, or just who people who aren't afraid to try things or talk about things, or that. Not not for the not not just new ideas or whatever for the sake of it. That that frustrates me. People are tr- just trying to like yeah something different for the sake of it, but actually people who are actually dedicated to their craft and trying to make things better and figure things out and not just accept okay x y and z person said this is the way it should be done and that's the way it should be done so i think yeah totally. you're 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 um i think you're one of those people who is not afraid to experiment and not afraid to try things and um i i appreciate that now i'm open to learning from anyone like that to be honest 
Yeah, definitely. No, I think that's um, I think that's a really important point as well. It's um, you, the, you can always learn something from from someone else, and at the end of the day, like as coaches, we just end up being a product of all the different people that we've learned from. I think um, there's obviously benefit in um, exploring different people's theories, but at the end of the day, it's got to be something that um, that yes, you can you can sort of apply to your own coaching and um, yeah, sort of something that uh, no doubt no doubt you do and uh, yeah, I'm trying to do the same. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, you're 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 that's why i try not to be like too hard on people either who are i'm but if i see people and i'm like they're just what they're doing is just dog shit and I, like yeah. it might be it might be dog shit to be honest but like at the end of the day they probably just weren't lucky enough to be exposed to different coaches and different mm-hmm. ideas at the right times at the right time yeah. so um so yeah I, I try to keep that in mind even though i do i do let my fr- frustration bubble over every now and again yeah. but even that's probably on purpose just to stir up something but um, yeah, yeah but yeah oh, so, just, social media just exaggerates all of that doesn't it exactly yeah exactly you have to play that game a bit but like i was just i've just been lucky enough to probably get exposed to some good ideas well that's my bias maybe they aren't good ideas maybe i just think they are but <laughs> you know um so what uh what age are you uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm 23. Um, yeah. So yeah, very, still very, very early in my um, in my career, and um, I think we were, we were mentioning um, not that long ago about um, still sort of finding my feet with with what my my coaching philosophies are, and um, yeah, still still very much in, in the learning stage. So um, yeah, yeah you're, fresh out of um, fresh out of football. You're um, so what I see for, what I see from you is you're you're doing a lot of coaching on field with athletes and young athletes, um, and I think you're. I think, at least from my point of view, you're pretty you're pretty deep into the kind of Franz Bosch uh, world of looking at movements. Would I be right? Yeah, definitely. So, um, yeah, a lot of stuff I do is, is field based. Field based. Sorry, I do um, a bit of gym based training as well. But um, yeah, in terms of the those those people that um, you know been lucky enough to to, to learn from, um, Franz is definitely definitely one of them. Um, and yeah, it sort of I guess shaped my thinking around how I approach problems whether it's an athlete coming with an injury or they they're, they're coming wanting to get um, faster or more powerful or whatever it is um i think yeah some of the stuff that i've that i've learned from friends has really helped me attack those problems in a um in a different way which is um i, I certainly wouldn't say that i've followed um friends work from a to z but i'm, I'm i think the, the the underlying principles that have made me a better problem solving coach than um than before i, I started looking into um, and, and studying all, all of his stuff so um yeah i think there's um obviously everyone's got a, a different opinion on on on, on francis work and um you know i can certainly see the, the the benefits in 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 some of the traditional type strength training as well um but i think the the biggest benefit that i've got from francis work is um is yeah sort of how i attack problems as, as a coach and, and more the um, the analysis side of things um when, when a new athlete uh, comes to me <laughs> i don't i don't I don't think Franz has an A to Z necessarily, though, does he? Like, no, he wants not. he doesn't want you to approach things like that. He wants you to look Absolutely. at the problem in front of you. Yeah, no, totally. And that's, at the end of the day, you you want to like I I think about this a, a lot. You, you want to have such a good base of knowledge that you can solve a problem on the fly. You don't necessarily want to have a textbook that you or you know a, a car phrase protocol that you follow every time someone presents the same injury. It's, um, you know, I guess coach education or, or study should, in, in my eyes, always be to improve your ability to solve problems, not to um, be better at, at rote learning um, 
in, in, in some sense. So, uh, yeah, no, you're definitely right. There's, there's no ages on, on that stuff. Too deep. There's a few, a few tangents on the, on the way. So, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. No, yeah, no you're, you're dead right there. In, um, that's why I find it so hard to, not so hard, but like when I'm teaching, like the, the workshops that I taught recently, it's tricky to pro- put a framework on things and imagine, I can't imagine how like tricky it is for Franz because he's talking much deeper about like motor learning and going deep into the weeds on that stuff, yeah. which is, which is immense. Yeah. Um, and, the, and the further you go, the harder it is to extract back a, a practical application, right? Which is almost something that uh, you actually put a post up the other day. We were talking about it, the, um, you go from simplicity to chaos and then back to simplicity. You always want to be able to derive a simple, um, I guess explanation for the, for the complex theory. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I think that's a good that's a good point to make there because I think people listening and probably if I think if a lot of people went on to your Instagram or someone else's Instagram who is using, say, water bags or like these different constraints or things like that, I think they would struggle to see the simplicity in that. Um, yeah. And would just call that maybe like it's just a lot of complexity and they don't necessarily understand how that could be utilized in a sim- simplistic way. So that's a good time to I basically love to talk to you about like what you're doing, what you're doing with your athletes and um, kind of the principles behind it as, as much as possible. And I suppose. Maybe we can frame the conversation with from an like an, an AFL lens then um, yeah, yeah. Australian rules football. because. I think that is it's a different sport, but not not too dissimilar to a lot of field-based sports. And even if you think about like basketball or 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 tennis, I think a lot there's a lot of similarities there. Um now obviously there's a lot of differences as well, but yeah, so um so I think that would be a nice way to frame it. And then can you can you then maybe break down kind of some of the key skills, key attributes that um, an Australian rules footballer, if anyone isn't familiar with that, maybe you could, you could just think <laughs> about like a mix between, I don't know, soccer and rugby, maybe would be a good, yeah, yeah. or Gaelic, it's similar, very similar to Gaelic football if you're in Ireland, but you will have seen it if you're Definitely. in Ireland. But um, yeah, some of the key kind of attributes that a player needs to have and then how you can how you try and break them down and, and we can go into like how you the principles you look at and how you coach them then from there yeah definitely so um yeah for those that aren't familiar with those rules it's a, it's a very chaotic game it's um it, it occurs in all 360 degrees so i guess that's one of the differences between rugby and afl um in rugby, you've obviously got just the players in front of you. It's almost 180 degree vision, whereas um, in, in Aussie rules, you've got players coming from, from all directions. So perceptions are a really big part of the game. Um, and in terms of the, like the attractors or components of movement that I think of, or that I find myself coaching the most, um, the ones that improve perception are, are really high up there. So, um, for example, maintaining head stability, um, doing all types of, of running-based movements in, um, in agility as well. Uh, they tend to be to be the big ones. So, <coughs> um, yeah. So obviously, France talks about limiting the vertical head displacement um, being a really important part of of movement, and even an indicator that you are moving well is is when your head stays still. So, um, yeah, a lot of the coaching I do is around around maintaining head stability um, in all different directions and all different movements as well. So, um, that's that's a really big one. And then. Um, yeah, in terms of, I guess, the more the more popularized attractors, um, the cross extensor reflex is one that I find myself 
queuing uh, or constraining a fair bit. So um, for those that are unfamiliar, the cost extensor reflex is obviously when you flex one one side, um, flex one leg and you get an extension response in, in the other side. So imagine stepping on a piece of glass and you, you rip that, that foot up really quickly. Um, and you obviously need to support yourself with the other leg so you get that extension response. Um, that's a big part of, of running. <coughs> Sorry, man. That's okay. Um, that's obviously, yeah, really big part of running and um, and something I find myself queuing a lot as well. What? Um, so cross-sex sensor, head <coughs> stability. Um, any any other big ones there? Or what, what about like kicking, catching, uh, things like that where I know, I know you might, they might, they might, they could fall under some of the other attractors as well, but how do you look, how do you look at things like that? Yeah. So I'm always looking for the, for the similarities and I guess that's the, the, um, the magic of the attractors is that they're multi-applicable. So for example, swing leg retraction will come out in, um, in side steps, in, in straight line running, in your jumping as well. So, um, the I guess the, the prerequisite for something to be an attractor um, in the, in the movement landscape is that it is multi applicable. So um, yeah, swing leg attraction is probably one of the ones that um, I when I'm doing a movement analysis I, I like to start with. Um, I've, like I said before, I do a little bit of work with fast bowlers in cricket, and um, yeah, I think that's um, probably something that I've I've managed to translate from cricket to, to footy as well, and, and pick up similarities in the movement analysis. There is that. Um, if you want stability for kicking, for example, on your on your stance leg, um, swing leg attraction plays an important part to um, developing that stability. And it's the same in, in fast bowling when you get to the crease as well. Um, so yeah, I think swing leg attractions. I mean, look, they're all multi applicable and all just as relevant. But um, yeah, I think I, I find myself analysing swing leg attraction a lot, and I like to start in the sagittal plane as well when I'm doing a movement analysis. So. Um, yeah, swing leg retraction is another big one. Which, for those that are unfamiliar, is um, extension of the of the of the swing leg prior to ground contact. Um, it's like a, a pre-tensioning mechanism of the um, of the leg before uh, ground reaction force hits, essentially. Okay, this is good. This is good. Um, <coughs> this is a good thing to talk talk about because the episode, my podcast episode, that's going to be released today, as we're you and I are talking. Um, so. Kira's actually should be working on it right now, although I need to give her a title. <laughs> I just I just broke down um swing phase of gate. I got a question on, on that and I broke down part at least parts of that. So um yeah. so swing leg retraction was one of those things. And I think it will feed in nicely then to like talking about the cross extensor reflex head stability, um totally. and other things like that. So I suppose before we dig into them a little bit more and how you train them and how you assess them and things, what can you can you give people an idea of what an attractor actually is then what that means and then obviously what a what a fluctuator means as well it doesn't have to be the most precise perfect definition yeah, or anything yeah. like that but what it means to you at least yeah totally so um the, the way i think of it is is that you've got all these degre- degrees of freedom throughout the body right every joint's got a certain amount of degrees of freedom and you add them together you get a very uncontrollable um well, a, a very hard to control um structure and then then you say, well, do we reduce all the degrees of freedom to make it really controllable? And that would be the attractors. So you're taking those degrees of freedom, reducing them, making them easier to, um, well, you're making the body more simple, right? So you, you might have a co-contraction around the knee that takes out the degrees of freedom around the knee and all of a sudden the, the global degrees of freedom are reduced. So that would be 
And a tractor is something that makes, makes the body um, more simple, let's say. It reduces degrees of freedom. <clears throat> um, and what that does is give the body stability, which um, then allows the fluctuators, which might be, um, which, which are the degrees of freedom you don't want to constrain. Um, it, it allows them to, I guess, be uh, adaptable to the environment. So um, attractors in movement have to be have to be stable, so self-stable, and they also have to be multi-applicable, like we talked about before. Um, so, for example, um, swing leg retraction is is an attractor because it. it tensions the leg in late swing phase so that when you strike the ground it's, it's stable it can deal with those external forces um and it's not interested in the environment so um if the task um changes or or there's an unexpected uh force then the attractors um shouldn't be uh, perturbed by that um that force because that they're, um, they're in a stable state so um the attractors i guess are the uh, yeah the, the stable components of movement and then the fluctuators are the, are the ones that should respond to the environment um so one that i like to use or an example I like to use in, in Aussie rules football is is arm drive, right? You never want the arm drive to be consistent in AFL because you have to catch a ball, hand pass a ball, kick the ball. Your hands have to be responding to the environment. Um, but for example, if you're receiving the ball from the from the side and um, and your and when you rotate your upper body, you lose your hip lock and you lose all your running attractors, um, then the the distribution of of attractors and fluctuators is wrong because you want your you want your upper extremity to be, to be responding to the ball. Um, if that sort of makes sense. So um, yeah, in a in a in a very broad sense, it's a way of organizing all of these um, components of movement into some that are uh, stable and some that are unstable or adaptable. Okay, so in, in that example, there the the fluctuator needs to be the arms where they need to be free to do whatever the hell they need to do, and yeah, then yeah. you still want to have your head stability, your hip lock, your swing leg retraction, all of these things. And but you might see someone sacrifice all of those attractors to actually just catch the ball. Yeah, absolutely, and and, and that happens in in all different types of scenarios as well. And I guess the the aim of um, I guess coordination based training is to get someone to have their attractors um, so 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 deeply embedded in their movement that when an unexpected situation comes along, they can they don't have to worry about that part of their body. That's oh sorry of that component of movement. It's it's like a um, a preset uh, solution that they can just churn out um, on the spot, and then they're they're left they're left free, I guess, to deal with the task at hand or opponents or whatever decision making um, the conscious that the task of the of the sport are. So um, yeah, in terms of uh, why are you training the attractors? It's to make them more stable um, so that they can deal with with uh, I guess more environmental influences. Yeah, that's uh, that's when you look at things in that way. It's absolutely fascinating when you watch someone like Lionel Messi or someone who's just a, an absolute yeah. master of their sport moving and being able to make decisions like they make and then execute execute on the decision. And they're making probably like God knows how many how many how many calculations are being made at the same time to figure out what the best option is. And that's and that doesn't even that doesn't even include the organizing their body around that yeah Uh, so that's just that's why i love like especially in the rehab process i love when we get to the point where you can introduce a ball to someone or something like that um because it really shows if the work you've done is is good or not to be honest because it's going to expose when when the ball comes in it's going to expose all the flaws or perceived flaws in their movement 
because yeah. you, you just can't hide it then you can't focus on okay i'm gonna try and keep my knee stable and gonna catch this ball and do something else at the same time yeah. that goes out the window and you have to focus on this the skill and the task at hand so the the top-down approach to cueing and coaching the body is gone at that stage and i think to be honest it should be gone quite early in the rehab process in 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 in, not in most cases but i think it doesn't have to be gone but i think people are too slow to 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 get to that more dynamic movement where there's a task involved they they keep a they keep queuing even when they get there they're queuing this like really conscious control of each different segment and that just that just confuses people and you won't see smoothness smoothness is the word i use a lot you won't see smoothness or rhythm in people's movement at that stage then yeah, and I mean, if you want someone to be smooth in the context of a very chaotic environment, and you don't have to be in a real chaotic sport like AFL, the environment itself is chaotic just mm-hmm. by nature of reality. So if you want someone to be a smooth mover in the context of any environment, it it's you've got to be adaptable to achieve smooth, if that makes sense. It's not like you, you go into it, um, uh, a car that drives over a bumpy surface needs adaptable springs, right? Because otherwise it won't result in a, in a smooth motion so i think um in, you know how do you get a car to be smooth over a bumpy surface where well, you make it more better at adapting to the to the bumpy surface rather than saying well the bumpy surface is it's an unfortunate situation let's go and train on a, on a smooth surface like no that's reality is that there's going to be um environmental influences and i think you know it almost comes back to what we're talking about with coaching you want to be an adaptable coach so that you can tackle the problem on the spot right not uh, have preset rules i guess the same thing can apply when you're training an athlete you want to teach an athlete to be adaptable um because the you know to keep using the analogy the bumpy road's going to come and how you respond to that is is a, is a better indication of, of your movement prowess i guess yeah exactly and, and an example of that like that um responding to the environment and putting someone into it is i've seen kind of friends use this to explain co-contractions before as well let's say let's say you're trying to teach someone a powerlifter wants to teach someone how to how to brace and they're spending a lot of time on the floor teaching them how to brace or doing different things. If you, if you get, if you, if there's ice outside on the floor and you get someone to try and walk on ice, guess what? They're going to brace and they're going to have co-contractions everywhere immediately. So it's not like the system doesn't know how to brace. It's that you haven't put them into a position where they're forced to actually figure out a good strategy to brace. So that's it. I think that's a good example of that. And and it's not like you, can't brace it's like you know people you know the old my glutes don't oh my my glutes need to be activated or you know all these all these little things about oh, my glutes don't work or this doesn't work or it's just it does it just hasn't been stimulated yet so i think trying to put and that probably comes full circle when we're talking about the attractors is if you want to prove to the system how stable something is you've got to throw all sorts of different environmental influences at it whether it's a perturbation from an aqua bag or it's a change in surface height um the more in the more different environments you're exposed to, then the more stable that component becomes. Um, and, and unless it's not stable. So if you, you know, you got these, you got the, the passive attractors, right? Where if you do throw all of these, and this is a, a good way to get rid of an error in movement, right? Is someone presents with um, a, a passive attractor, whether it's deep dorsiflexion in stance phase or it's a, a hip drop at, at mid stance, they present with that passive attractor. One way to get, instead of telling someone don't, don't drop into deep dorsiflexion. A, 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 um, a constraints-based 
approach would have you throw as many destabilizing components at that pattern until the deep dorsiflexion, which is a passive attractor, is proved to be unstable. And then the body will have it, it, it'll have less um, reliance on deep dorsiflexion for stability because it would have had to figure out a new solution. And I guess that's the that's one of the the practical applications of of Francis' work that I found really beneficial is when you find an error, how do you how do you look at improving it? Is it is it um, should every rep that you do in the, in the gym be perfect? And the more perfect reps you do, the the better the athlete becomes. Well, you know we, we know that's not true, but also we, when we want to make someone adaptable, the um, the further the further away you get from perfect practice, and, and the more you get into that adaptable uh, environment, let's say, I guess the um, the yeah, I guess a better indicator as to, as to how movement is is designed in reality or in in, in the sporting situation. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'm going to ask you a question on that then. What? So, uh, can you explain a little bit more between the difference between passive and active attractors before I ask yep. you about the deeper the deeper dorsiflexion for for an example then? Yeah, so I, I always imagine. Um, so the, the passive attractors are um, they're stable, but they um, they don't protect the body. For is it, is one characteristic of them, and might leave it there in terms of how deep you go into it. But they don't protect the body, but they are stable, and it's important to recognize that these errors are stable. That's why they become part of how someone moves. So, for example, you imagine you're walking along and you, you sort of sit into your hip, and you just hang there. You sit into your um, you sit into one hip, and your your body weight leans over to one side. That's you, your ba- what you're doing is is sitting in or hanging, I like to use the term, hanging in passive tissue. So the, the, the tissue's at its end range, it's not active, it's just stretched until there's tension between the joints and that gives you stability. And that might be fine when you're standing there just you know, waiting for a coffee or something where there's no ground reaction force, there's no defenders, there's, you know, there's, the environment's really simple. So a passive attractor like that's fine, it provides enough stability for the context. But if you try and run with that same hip drop, then... Um, when the unexpected forces that are not only unexpected but also um, quite large in um, in magnitude as well, when they when they hit the hip joint, there's not enough protection around the joint just from the the, the passive stretch of of for example let's say the glute max in that situation. So an active attractor around the same joint, the hip joint would be hip lock. Now um, people look at hip lock and they say, oh, it's just it's just abduction, but Hip lock, by definition, is a co-contraction of all the muscles around the hip. It results in an outside shell of the free side of the pelvis being slightly higher than the stand side. But by definition, it's a co-contraction of all the muscles around the hip joint. And what you find there is instead of having one passive muscle stretch to end range to provide stability, you've got all of the muscles around the hip active at optimal length, contracting isometrically. What it does is hold the hold the joint in a um, a state of equilibrium where these external forces are um, better managed and they don't cause the um, they don't cause stress to, for example, the the, the lower backs a common one around the, when there's when there's a passive pelvis um, or passive hip joint. So um, yeah, the, that's a bit of a um, bit of an overview around the hip joint, but they occur all the way through the body, and often you'll see someone who has um, a passive hip joint will have a passive ankle as well. So you get deep dorsiflexion at the same time as you get that hip drop. Mm-hmm. Um, and often cleaning one of them up cleans up the other one as well. It, it right. shows how how integrated the body is. Um, but yeah, the, the passive attractors are, um, uh, they're still stable. I think that's a really important part to remember is that they're an error, but they are stable and they're not as stable as, a, as an active attractor. And that's where you want to get the body to. So you, 
yeah. constantly knocking on the door until it is destabilized. Yeah, I think people will usually use the way they, they would traditionally have thought about that is just like a, a passive attractor is kind of a compensation, quote unquote, where, yeah, yeah. so so someone, someone it's not necessarily, it's, they, they kind of learn to move this way, and it, but it doesn't mean, and, and, it, and it, it probably works for them, but it doesn't mean it's necessarily the best way that they could be doing it. Things could be, Ooh, things could be yeah. moving a lot more efficiently and probably protecting them a lot more as well. But it depends on the on the on the context on the environment. So if you're if you're walking very very slow, there's absolutely no reason why you have a hip lock because the environment's way too boring for that to be required. Right? It's just a waste of a waste of energy. So mm-hmm. it, I think when the when you see a, a passive attractor in high intensity movement like flat out sprinting or kicking or, 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 or a sidestep or whatever it is. If you see a passive attractor in high intensity movement, the, that's a clear sign that the body is not, isn't, has not adapted to the environment because they're staying in a solution that is inappropriate for that environment. So I guess when you're doing a movement analysis, um, you can, you could look there and you could look and say, well, okay, the glute meat's not strong enough. That's why the hips dropping. Well, sure. But, there's probably also a coordination effect to it. If someone's in a completely different phase, you've got these phase transitions, right? You've got passive or attractive or active. Around the hip joint, there's nothing in between. You're either you're either in this uh, there's unstable space in, the, in, in between. But um, if you're if someone presents with uh, a, a passive hip joint, you see the hip drop, and you haven't seen what their co-contraction is like. Jumping to the conclusion that it's just a weak glute knee is a bit of a a far reach in my eyes where there's a low hanging fruit there just get them to do a co-contraction and it might be fine so um i guess when it comes to movement analysis identifying what's a passive attractor what's an active attractor and 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 this is the important part it's one thing to analyze it then there's another thing to like we said before chase the feed the error chase the error and and destabilize the passive one until it turns into or until the body chooses um yeah. a different solution and we want that to be the active attractor if you're working in high intensity movement yeah. if you want someone to walk well that keeps them in your blood. yeah i think it's important for people to understand that walking and running and sprinting are not the same thing so um, different yeah. yeah they're very different and and uh, that's 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 tricky because when you look at uh when you look at the joints moving in walking gait and the bones moving, they will be moving in the same directions. Like you will yeah. still see, if you take the foot, for example, you still see more supination, then more pronation in mid stance, and then more resupination again. You'll see kind of more knee extension, more knee flexion, the more knee extension, this type of thing. And, and that will apply to walking, running, and sprinting. But what's ha- happening around the tissues is the is completely different. What's happening around the connective tissues and the muscle and the fascia is 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 completely different uh so that's why you can't just presume actually i see people all the time who i would say their 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 walking gait it just looks all over the place but then they move yeah. into into high intensity movement and they can put it together so unbelievably well and that's maybe yeah. a sign of okay they don't have maybe a ton of relative motion but the coordination there where they can actually they can coordinate all these tissues, all these things together in high intensity movement. They can probably pre-tension well. That's that's a that's a beautiful thing to see. So I think that's an important distinction between walking gait and the phase transitions that you're saying. Yeah, totally. And it, it uh, I said before, it's a low hanging fruit. Like 
coordination based training is so um there's so many great benefits to it. It, it you know for one for example you don't have to go through all of this muscle soreness to get slightly strong like you do when you you know go through a, a really um good strength program you don't have to go through that for coordination based training because you're you're working with light weights you're working you know the the overall volume isn't um critical to the improvements that you see in the movement so like coordination based training is as a way to improve someone's movement is it's such a low hanging fruit and if if then you know you get someone doing a moving well and they're still having issues and you know maybe there is a strength problem there as well but i think um exhausting the low hanging fruit of coordination based training i'd say like, is, is 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 super important um in, if you're trying to find out what the, what the best i'm not saying it's definitely not always the best way to go for sure i totally understand that but i think it's something that should be exhausted at, at least um in part when when, when uh, someone presents with an issue yeah i'm with you on that because that that's exactly like the example you used with someone who's who's getting some issues in their hip joint and then it looks like they're not super active around the they're not getting them co-contractions around the hip and we say okay you're it looks like your glute med isn't very strong because i test you in a muscle test maybe like maybe there's just inhibition there because there's a little bit of pain or whatever it doesn't mean that that muscle isn't actually strong but if you actually look take a step back and look at look at that person it, do they have a strong foot and a strong ankle that's doing the right thing at the right time? And if they don't, it doesn't, it probably doesn't matter how strong you ever make that glute med, they're going to continue to have that dropping into deeper dorsiflexion and they're not dispersing any force on the way up through the chain. It's just, there's just a ton of compression and at, at that hip joint. So yeah. I would, well, I would try and presume firstly that the first presumption, unless it was an injury history, like a very clear injury history that, okay, you just damaged that ankle or that hip and there's clearly atrophy there or whatever. I would try and presume that actually absolutely. I can clean this up a bit quicker because it's more, maybe more of a coordination based thing. And we know with coordination, the cool thing is it can change in a few reps. You can, and that like, that's what I find fascinating with human movement. Yeah. You can, you can change something. Whereas if we're going to presume straight away that this is a strength issue, that means it's going to take four weeks, six weeks, three months, whatever yeah. to, to clean up. But actually that's, that doesn't seem to be the case with people. And you, that's, a, that's a good example. You mentioned at the start of the, um, at the start of the podcast about when you put someone, you know, someone can't brace when they're walking normally, you put them on ice, they can all of a sudden brace. It's not like they, they can't do it. They just haven't been exposed to environments where they need to. Um, and, and you know, this is where you get into the debate of reduc- of the reductionist approach versus the, the dynamic systems. It's um, you're, you can have a really, really strong glute meat, but if you still run with, a passive attractor state of your hip joint it doesn't that that muscle still be you know still it's not protecting the the um the passive structures any any more than a weak gluten meat would so the um i think that this is a this is a, a something that i found really important is you can look at the symptoms which is all right, i've got lower back soreness and the or, you know there's some there's some issue somewhere around that lumbar pelvic region you can look at that and then and then jump to the conclusion of you must you must have weak abs and weak glute meat or whatever whereas actually trying to find the underlying cause of that symptom i think is a really uh something that might might be skipped a little bit 
too much sometimes in 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 strength training. It's it's the here's the problem, here's the solution. You you walk uh, not just strength training, you know, rehab or, or anything. You you walk into a physio's office with a, with a sore calf, you walk out with a calf raise protocol. But why do they have the sore calf? Because an old lady who walks in with a sore calf might walk out with the same calf raise protocol, and there's no the reason why they have a sore calf is completely different. The old lady's got something to do with walking upstairs. The athlete's got something to do with high intensity movement. And we spoke before about the difference between walking and running. And I just think that that there's got to be a middle section. There's got to be a linking phase between the problem and the solution that dives deep into the cause. And if you do a full movement analysis and there's nothing from a coordination perspective that is glaringly obvious, then you've got to find another avenue. And I'm not saying that coordination-based training is the only avenue. There's so many different um, elements to performance. You know, sleep's a, a massive one. You've got strength training. You've got, you've got strength issues, coordination issues, sleep, nutrition. They're all these different arms that total performance, right? And I just think that perhaps we focus a little bit too much on strength being the issue and, and, and perhaps don't do a, a deep enough analysis to, to – find out if there is something on the coordination arm yeah i'm with you on that definitely and definitely like when you t- if you think about that example of someone has a a sore calf or a sore achilles if if you, if you dig into the line of questioning and ask like that thing of asking qu- why five times to let's say a physio who just says okay you have a sore calf your calf isn't strong enough um well, why if you if you ask if you ask why it's not strong enough like why why don't why is my right calf sore my not not my left calf okay because mm. i because i just or they say you you have to, you did it the, the load was too much which it is and you're correct yeah. the load was too much for me my, my achilles is flared up but why was it too much on my right side and not my left side because presuming i run on two legs and they both did the same amount of work then why yeah. is it too much on that side? And presuming there hasn't been a, a, a prior injury, and they might say then the next the next answer is well because your right calf isn't as strong as your left calf. Well, presuming yeah. I took, presuming I just ran all my life and did the same amount of work on both legs, then why isn't my right calf as strong as my left calf? Then oh, you're right. then then you've stumped someone because they don't actually know, and that probably comes back to how you actually move and how you load the muscles. So now you have, if you just ask why a few more times, you've 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 stumped one of those physios or those trainers who just think that just layering on more strength is the answer for everything and. Well, I'm a, I'm a yeah. big strength person. I do a, do a lot of strength work with people, but I'm yeah, not yeah. I'm not silly enough to presume that like okay, I can just I can just reduce all people's issues down to you just need to get a little bit stronger at that muscle. Totally, yeah. I think you you brought up a really important point of the reason why you're so you could, yeah the reason why why is my calf sore because the load's too much. Absolutely, the load's too much. If the load's too much for that muscle in that particular environment, the way it's moving now. A great example of this is in fast bowling. You, there's an incredible amount of lower back injuries, you know, lumbar stress fractures, all these like nasty lower back injuries in really young athletes. And you can look at it and, and they have these really strict loading protocols on how many balls you can bowl every day or week, which, you know, absolutely makes sense. But when you get a lower back injury, you say, why have you got a lower back injury? Because there's too much load for the way I'm moving now. And often we jump to the conclusion of it's too much load. Let's reduce the load and keep moving how you are. And let's reduce the load until we can handle it. Whereas, and that's, you know, wrapping cotton wool a little bit, but it's also ignoring the problem. 
if if there is a, a a coordination issue there, it's it's not even addressing the issue because you're backing the load. Why wouldn't we increase? Why wouldn't we improve the way that that fast bowler moves so that there's less stress going through that lower back so it can handle that load and then you can increase the load over time. So I think the um, what you said before about about the muscle the, the tissue not being able to handle load is 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 so true but then as you said as well there's so many more whys beyond that you know ask a few times why is that load too much for one side not the other i think that yeah there's a really really important sort of linking stage there guys david here just a quick break from the show to tell you to sign up for djr interactive if the thought of biomechanics makes you weak at the knees and you'd love to learn about all the stuff that i talk about but you think you don't have enough time, then all I'm asking for from you is 15 minutes a week. If you have 15 minutes a week, I'll teach you every single week a new a new video. You can draw you can join um 700 plus coaches and therapists that are in there now uh learning every single week. So if you're interested in learning biomechanics, rehab, motor control, all about movement, performance training, then jump on to DJR Interactive. The link is in the show notes. So let, let's say you're looking at someone, you analyze them and you think, okay, there's, they're using a lot of passive attractors here. So they're dropping deep into dorsiflexion when they run, they're not getting the hip lock. Maybe as a result of that, maybe not. Um, so how, how would you identify kind of, or think about identifying one versus the other? Okay. The ankle is the issue here versus the hip is the issue. Or do you need to be that specific? Because in the drill, are you probably going to be working on a little bit of both and if so, like yeah. what, what are some examples of, so how, how you, how you might identify it and then how you might work on it? Yeah. Well, uh, the first step is obviously identifying what's going wrong, but then trying to figure out. So if there is multiple issues in, in the movement analysis, trying to figure out which one is as friends are called the gang leader, which is the one component that's, that's doing the most, you know, it's, it's leading the rest of the body down that route um, of passive, or, you know, the, the passive or the error in movement. So it's bloody hard to find out which one's the, the gang leader. And at the end of the day, I say this to my athletes all the time, at the end of the day, we are guessing. Everyone in our industry, we're guessing. We, it's informed guesses. We've got a lot of research. We've got a lot of knowledge behind us. But at the end of the day, I think coaches got to be, we've got to acknowledge that everything we do is, is a guess. And so a lot of the time, if there's three issues, you've got to almost do a bit of trial and error to figure out which one you can clean or you know, which ones you can clean up and which ones you can't. And so... Yeah, early days I was I was doing a movement analysis and then I was saying these are the exercises that will fix that and go and do them and I'll see you in six weeks and you'll be moving better. Whereas in reality, if you genuinely want to improve someone's movement, you almost need to play with it. Like forget sets and rep, sets, reps and exercises, like add a hurdle, take a hurdle, change the change the surface. Yeah. And that's it comes back to being a being a problem solving coach that can identify you know, step one and analyze and identify the issue. But then take a bit of time, take an hour to go through, you know, this movement with the athlete and figure it, figure it out together. Because it's not, it's not, it's so not black and white. And our industry is so young, like in comparison to, to uh, you know, medicine, dentistry, and all that. Like sports science is so young. You almost, and I say this again, I say this all the time: is the best information that we get is from the athlete during the drill, whether it's them giving you feedback as to how they're feeling or what you're seeing when they're doing an exercise and i think if you are wedded to your sets reps and exercises that you've programmed in advance doesn't mean you don't program in advance you, you still need to have a framework but i would say it's i'd say the most accurate information we can get is 
an informed guess based on the information we're getting from the athlete, how they're moving, which, you know, what's causing them to mess up in the drill, um, what they can deal with, um, all sorts of things. You know, you've got the RPE scale where an athlete shows up the training and they tell you how they're feeling. And that's, you know, proven to be a, a relatively accurate indicator of all sorts of, um, all sorts of uh, readiness measures. So I think when you, so back to your question of, of how do you find the, the, the gang leader or the, um, the part of the body that's, that you need to clean up the most, what's most important for that athlete? It's, it's got to be trial and error. And sometimes it takes 10 minutes. Sometimes it takes two weeks with an athlete, but paying attention to the information that you're, that you're getting back from the athlete during their training sessions, I think is, um, is, is a really big part if you genuinely want to improve how someone moves in the long term, right? Not just, um, you know, to be perfect at doing a drill. Yeah, I'm with you. I think having a couple of like little KPIs in your mind that these are the things I'm watching out for, or these are the things I'm listening yeah. for, for from from them. That um, like they they'll a lot of athletes will tell you very quickly. Um, now it doesn't mean they're right, but they will tell you they they will tell you that feels different or whatever. But that's yeah. information, and, and even and even um, nonverbal information as well. Like um, the inform- if you give someone a drill and say, All right, we're gonna do ten reps of them, and it take and they and they do two out of the 10 reps well and eight out of the 10 reps they fall over or the whatever the perturbation was makes them fail if you're doing that drill and they're getting it two out of 10 times it's, it's not a, it's not a good drill they're not in their learning zone so that's feedback it, you know they're not, not saying anything but it's 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 physical feedback right how they're doing the drill um and vice versa if someone's doing if you program someone uh, a coordination based drill something like, let's just say the hip lock drill for example and they can do it 10 out of 10 times perfectly it's the wrong drill as well. You need you, you've got to find that learning zone. And so, when you're watching someone, uh, if if you're not watching someone do a drill, uh, just sorry, do it do a set. How do you know how effective that set's been? How do you know they're not just cruising through and it's the easiest thing in the world? And they're not getting any learning effect out of it. So I think you've got to because remember, if you want to take a, a passive attractive state to an active attractive state, you've got to disturb it enough. And if someone's just doing the drill and it's easy, they're, they're not getting that destabilizing effect and you know, what's the magic number? Who knows? But uh, I know friends have said before, roughly 70% success in a, in a drill is a, is a good starting point and mm-hmm. a little, a little tool that you can have in your, um, in your coaching toolbox where it, I use that in, in my skill sessions as well. I do a lot of footy skills, um, with some, um, AFLW players and, and I'm always trying to chase that 70% and the, the athletes always trying to get to hundred percent. And I'm always trying to make the drill harder to get them back to 70. If they're only doing 20%, then we know we need to add layers to it. So I think, um, yeah, there's, there's there's a lot of different. Um, that I, I would be hesitant to be wedded to sets, reps, and um, yeah. and exercises, and, and yeah. ignore the information coming from the athlete. Yeah. I think the seven out of ten. I think the seventy percent is fairly solid in the in the research around mm. seventy or eighty percent success rate. When I was trying to learn handstands and stuff like that uh, several years ago. Edo Portal, that was one of his things as well. 70, 80% success rate. Um, that's 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 what you're looking for. And it took me a while to get anywhere near that in, in some of the drills. So um, so uh when I was when I was um in in Irish sports as well, when I was t- practicing a lot of free taking in Gaelic football, that was the number that I I kind of kept in mind as well, around 70%. People say, okay, don't leave the, okay, you, you're going to kick the ball over the bar from this position in the field and, and you're not allowed to move on till you get 10 out of 10. 
Yeah, and yeah. I think I think if you actually looked at someone, they're probably getting seven or eight out of ten. And you could, if you if you nudge them into a more difficult position. So let's presume, okay, in that position, it's slightly easier. You're getting seven out of ten here, eight out of ten. If I nudge you into a more difficult position, instead of just keeping you there until you get ten out of ten, try and get you to seven out of ten in the in the in the more difficult position. I bet you if I brought you yeah. back to that easier one, you're gonna get nine out of ten, ten out of ten now. So it's um, so true. Yeah. And so there's that bit of failure has to be has to be there. Yeah, and it comes back to what you're trying to improve with the athlete. Are you trying to get them to to use that example of, of goal kicking? Are you trying to get them to goal kick perfectly every time in a simple situation with no pressure? Or are you trying to improve the adaptability of their technique? And if you're trying to improve the adaptability of their technique, not just get perfect practice at training, but I think there's a real distinction there between what your goal is and what it perhaps could be. And I think if you're if you're trying to improve someone's goal kicking, it should be or any, someone's movement in general. If in a, in a sporting um, in the context of sport, you should be trying to um, improve the 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 problem solving, adaptable nature of that movement. And so, if you uh, but there's also a conflict there between what athletes want to feel good. Like some athletes won't want to run out and play the game until they've kicked ten straight in a row mm-hmm. because that makes them feel good. But I think you almost have to do a little bit of education to say, well, that's that's not going to make your kicking better on field when you're under pressure. And so you, there's almost a little bit of education there. Of once you get beyond that 70, 80%, once you get to 9 10, you've got to change it up. You've got to, you've got to move to a new drill. doesn't mean you can't come back to it and still do your 10 reps before you run out on the field. But I think um, the goal of training, and this is something that, that, that I found as, as, as an athlete as well, is I used to be so strict on how a, how a training session should go. And if the training session went well, I would play well. Whereas in reality, if the training session went, you know, use that analogy, 70, 80% well, then it's probably going to have a better transfer to game day in terms of how adaptable and and and, and problem yeah, the, solving the difficulty of it. Like yeah, where you're chew you're chewing on a problem and you're trying to yeah, it's it's just at the edge of your comfort zone. Definitely, I've yeah. been in a lot of training sessions that went 100 percent well because it was yeah. too easy. Um, and I can guarantee and you, you feel game, great. Yeah, you feel great. I can you guarantee you the, the game did not go that well that weekend. Um, totally. The best training sessions I've been in where is where like we got bet the weekend before or whatever, and the manager just we just absolutely killed each other. Like you knew if you don't <laughs> if you don't if you don't win this ball, someone's going to take your head off. So, um, totally. so yeah. Uh, well, okay, so go on. Were you going to say something? Oh yeah, I was just going to say just um, to finish off that little train of thought as well. I like to use the analogy of if you're trying to prepare someone to be. Um, let's say, let's say you're a parent and you've got a kid who's got some homework and you want to prepare them for a maths test. You don't just get them to do the same problem over and over and over again until they're perfect at that one problem. Because when you get to the maths test, let's say it's got a hundred questions on it. What's going to make them good in the maths test when they don't know what the questions are is the little, the little problem solving techniques or the, or the, or the, or the um, solutions that they can apply to all of those different problems. And so, if you're, you can translate that to training. If you're giving someone the same, say, an exercise, any exercise that you do is a problem that the athlete needs to find a solution for in terms of movement. If you're just giving them the same problem and getting them really good at, the, at solving that one problem, they're not going to be, they're not going to get better at problem solving in in mm-hmm. in, um, in in unexpected situations. And the same if you give the athlete the answer, if the parent gives the kid the answer to that. To every maths question they do for homework, they're also not going to get good at problem solving. So you want to 
that's where the conscious cueing you were talking about the cueing before. Like if you're just telling someone that you need to do a hip block, then it's not problem solving. You're just putting them in that position and they're having off to hip block or not. So destabilizing instead makes them solve the problem, which you hope will be hip block. So I think that again, I'm probably sound like a stuck record, but I think that there's a really clear distinction between training for perfect practice and training to be a better problem solver. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm with you. Um, okay, so for the last while, I'm going to ask you questions about some of those attractors that you mentioned earlier. So the first one is mm-hmm. keeping the head stable. Can you talk a little bit about that? So limiting limiting head displacement, um, yeah. why that's important. I think hopefully everyone can appreciate a little bit about why that's important. And, and then like, how, how, how do you coach that? If yeah yeah if you see if you see that that's not quite amazing let's say yeah yeah well I think um again the context of Aussie rules football you, you've got to be able to perceive the environment in 360 degrees and um which is which is an exaggeration on on, on normal life right you, st- you still have to be able to see the environment well whether you're moving in 360 degrees or not but it's probably exaggerated in, in Aussie rules let's say so if your if your if your eyes drop up and down every time you take a step, if you've got this big collision where your your center of mass drops and rises and drops and rises and you big and, and your head's moving all the time, you've got to recalibrate your vision every time. I don't know the exact stats, but there's there's a, there's a little time, um, you know, it's a, a fraction of a second that you lose every time your head um, changes direction, dropping or, or rising. So if you can move around the football field with a stable head, you're going to perceive the environment better. And we know we've got this perception action loop where if your perception is good, then your actions, uh, then you've got more chance of, of, of acting in a, in a good way. So, um, so skilled perception results in skilled action, which results in skilled perception. So the better you move, the better you perceive, the better you move in, in, in a loop. So um, I'd, I'd almost prefer that someone can move um, at 75% of their maximum possible speed, keeping their head still than they can than sprinting flat out and losing head stability in a sport like AFL where it's so chaotic. So um, I guess that's why um, keeping the, the head stable is so important so that you, you, you can improve your perception, which has a flow on effect to your actions. And then in terms of how you improve that, so come back to the, the, the car driving on the bumpy surface, you almost want to try and make the head drop as much as you can. As a coach, you want to, you want to put the athlete in a drill where it's more likely that the head will go up and down so that they have to work harder to, to keep it stable. So one drill that I, I do a lot of in lateral movement, for example, is you set out some mats on the floor. The mats might be, um, you know, three centimeters tall. So not, not very much, but you know, that's a decent jolt for your head to take. So mm-hmm. instead of getting someone to side and skip, let's say, or, or move laterally along a flat ground, you get them to move along and the ground's undulating. So there's one reason why the head might want to drop. Now, the problem with that is there's not really clear knowledge of result. You're not the athlete doesn't, other than you maybe cueing, keep your head still, which isn't the greatest yeah. way to try and improve it, right? That's just giving the kid the the solution to the maths problem. The kid was um, just like, "What the hell does that mean?" Exactly, <laughs> especially if they don't do it naturally. Like it's not that easy. You can't just say that again. Coming back to the ice skates and uh, walking on ice analogy, you almost need to stimulate them into bracing. You can't just tell them to brace. So, mm-hmm. um, so for example, um, another another. Um, a, a good way so take that example where you move laterally over an undulating surface um and there's a fence line in the background if you know you there's a fence line in the background and you can hold a, a stick or, or, a, um, or a band or something up and the the task of the athlete is, is move sideways over the mats 
and I want you to keep the band that you're holding sort of out in front of your eyes about eye level, keep that band covering the fence line and oh, you yeah. don't let the band drop off the fence line. If the band drops off the fence line and they're not matched up anymore, then the head's moving too much. So if you want to achieve the task, which is move sideways over these mats, keeping the band in line with the fence line and the fence line's not dropping, your head's still. If the mm-hmm. fence line's dropping every step, your head's not still. So you get this real sort of bifurcation where you either achieve the movement that we want or you don't. And if um, if if they can, you know, you get a lot of people that are just going to that, that drill in that situation and they'll do it slow because they want to keep the the band on the fence line. And in that case, all right, they, they're getting 10 out of 10. The band's not, the, the fence line's not moving away from the band. Well, then what do you have to do? You've got to, inc- you've got to add something else until they, you get them close to that 7%. So it might be do it slightly faster. It might be put a hydro vest on and, and add perturbations to the system. But that's a, an example of how you would get to the result you want, which is the athlete being able to respond to the environment in a way that results in a stable head rather than, and, and when you look at that drill, they're not going to do it perfectly every time. So you've got to embrace that imperfect practice. Whereas if you wanted to show off as a coach, you just get them to do it on a flat surface without their arms up, right? And then there's the car driving on the flat surface. It's, you know, your head's staying still, but it's, it's not, it's not, it's not adapt. You're not, you're not adapting to the environment to get there. So throwing curveballs at the athlete in, in, in some sense, but making sure there's clear knowledge of result on what we want. For example, the, the band on the fence line is, is one sort of way that I would attack, um, attack that sort of drill. Yeah, I like it. I think that could be very beneficial actually for people with, uh, like po- after getting concussion, stuff like that, even, even totally. like, even knocks in the head. sub. you know, a lot of people think about the people with vision issues and, and, concussion okay that's them and i don't have that but like a lot of us have had like there's there's kind of subclinical symptoms here that we're not maybe aware of where our eyes are struggling Mm -hmm. to stabilize our eyes are struggling to track an object or we're struggling to keep our head still for example if people if i've messed around with this if you go for a walk and you purposely don't keep your head still when you're going for a walk you actually let it bounce around a little bit it is the most disgusting thing your movement yeah. feels horrible. If it, you actually will get like a headache, your eyes can't focus on anything. That's um, something particularly nasty. And so I suppose if you're not particularly stable there when you're in a, a chaotic, dynamic environment, it's not like you're going to be coming back into the dressing room afterwards and saying, OK, I had a terrible game today. I couldn't keep my head still. No, it's it's not going to be obvious to you in that way, but maybe... Yeah. Maybe that was one of the reasons or one of the things that was that was going on in the background. Um, totally. Yeah, I think Lee Taft has a, he was on the podcast as well. Actually, people should go back and listen. But mm. he did a presentation for us on our, um, our member site called, he has a 180 series. It's just like a, it's just like a series of, you could call it warm up drills, but not necessarily where like you're just doing a, a 180 or a 360 turn, obviously a 180 turn. Um, you're, you're just running out doing a 180 or you could be mimicking someone else. Um, and then there's, there's things like, I can't remember if he did this in the presentation, but I, I use this now as well, where especially like post ACL, um, we're getting back on the field. They've done a little bit of linear running. They've done a small bit of change of direction. So let's say they're jogging across the field 
um, with their eyes on on the goalposts. So they're jogging across the field and they're like looking yeah. to the left to get their eyes on the goalposts. They have to do a 180 turn and then they have to find the goalposts with their eyes as quickly as possible again. So as sharp mm-hmm. as possible. And actually, you'll see the movement clean up really early. They'll, they'll struggle initially, but you'll see the 180 turn clean up a lot quicker because they have this target to focus their eyes back on immediately. And obviously, you can do that in different directions. You can do that going backwards. Um, but things like that, I think, are really interesting things to to play around with. And you will see people's movement change quite quickly. Yeah, well, movement in... And, that, and that's a good example of a an environment completely changing how the movement is built so if you're doing a drill where you don't have to you don't you don't have any constraints on on perceiving the environment you're gonna move in a completely different way to when there's high constraints on how you perceive the environment so i think if that's not enough to prove that the environment has a massive influence on movement i'm not not quite sure what is so i think um yeah again there's there's their philosophies but they're um once you once you start using them in practice you start to realize how beneficial it can be you can throw the athlete into any type of environment and and they can deal with it that's the that's the end goal right yeah yeah it's it's it, it, it's not enough like for people to they, they, they just can't put the pieces together to why if you, if you go on tiktok for example I, I follow a guy i follow a guy on tiktok that is um he's like a soccer uh football or soccer, whatever you want to call him, freestyler, right? And he takes all these free kicks and like one-on-one with anyone, he looks unbelievable and he can like beat anyone. No one can get the ball off him. And he's also really strong and really fast. And you should presume then if you have such good ball control, you can pass the ball, you can strike the ball, you're strong, you're fast, you're all of these things, you're very fit, you will be a good footballer. And he actually played in a... He played in a, what you call it, like a, a charity match or something like that. And he was terrible. Yeah. Well, he wasn't terrible. He was better than most of them because most of them weren't footballers at all. But like yeah. he just couldn't. He didn't have the perception of where the players were around him and stuff like that. So this is yeah. this is the issue with people that are just separating out the buyer motor qualities and saying, OK, you, I just make you str- stronger. I make you faster. And you practice your skills separate to that and you should be a yeah, better yeah. player. That's just doesn't seem to be the case. And, and um, in, I think it's in anatomy of agility um, friends points out this really interesting um, concept or this, um, I think he throws out this idea of the, the interactions between different components being arguably more important than the individual components themselves. So use that example of, really good ball handling, really good speed, really good power in isolation. Great. But what's your ball handling like when you're running fast? And if, you, if you've got someone who's got great ball handling when they're not running fast, great speed without the ball, but then the combination of them, they, they can't interact. They can't, um, they can't combine them well. Then you're right. The, then as you said, you get someone who's really skilled, not being out of performing context. And so you, you, then you look at training, what am I trying to do? Am I trying to improve someone's ball skills in isolation and then their speed in isolation? Or am I trying to improve how they combine them both? And I think this is the, um, I guess, the idea that that, is, that, is, um, that you read. I think it's one of the early chapters in Anatomy of Agility where you improve the, um, yeah, the, the, the interactions of components and that gives you a better outcome in context rather than improving each, each um, component individually. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, okay, next one. Um, cross extensor reflex. Why you explained a little bit like, okay, I step on a plug. I'm going to lift that foot up, which means I'm going to put the other foot back down straight away. So yeah. one leg is kind of dynamically flexing. One leg is dynamically extending. Um, why? I don't want to say why is that so important. Obviously, it's important. But what 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 do you look at there, and what do you maybe do to to train that then? Yeah, so that um that reflex, obviously, like I said, you get you get flexion on one side, extension on the other. So um the reason why I find myself working with the cross extensor reflex a lot, whether it's cueing or constraining, working with it a lot is because it's it's so close related to so many other attractors. Swing leg retraction is extension of the, of the swing leg before it hits the ground. So if you want one leg to extend rapidly and powerfully, you can get that from as an extension response from rapidly flexing the opposite side. So um, if I want, if I if I find that someone's not uh, retracting their swing leg properly, I'll often come back to the cross extensor reflex, cue heel to hamstring, or put a hurdle in the way to force them to rip that leg up fast enough and, and recover that that back leg fast enough. And as a result, because the, the 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 limbs have to stay in time with each other, as a result, we get better swing leg retraction. So that's an example of how the cross extensor reflex would improve swing leg retraction. And it's also closely related to hip lock as well. So if you're looking at um, someone run in the sagittal plane, you'll see that when when their hip knee and ankle are at their highest amount of flexion, so you get that um, mid-stance position where the the swing leg is very flexed, then you flip the athlete around looking at the frontal plane, it's going to be the same moment when they're in their hip lock, Mm -hmm. which makes sense because the, the hip lock comes at the end of triple extension, right? So you've got triple extension, which is decelerated by hip lock. So if I want, if someone is doing a hip lock drill and they're doing it quite slowly and they're not quite getting stable at the top and they're just, you know, lifting with one, you know, lifting with glute med, let's say, when they do it at low intensity, you can cue, I want you to rip your heel to your hamstring because that gives you the triple, the, the aggressive flexion on the swing side. You can, you can cue um, uh, heel to hamstring and put a hurdle in the way and you get a stronger hip lock as a result because the extension response is higher so you're extending faster due to that reflex which means that you need a hip lock to decelerate that extension so the cross extensor reflex has a uh, um i guess and the stumble reflex has a really important place in the in in the whole running cycle and you know if someone doesn't have good ankle stiffness or they're very stompy let's say that's an indication of their let's say that they have poor ankle stiffness and they're, they're pulling into deep dorsiflexion Instead of telling again, coming back to it, instead of telling someone not to sink into deep dorsiflexion, which most, mm-hmm. most athletes won't understand, you can cue the opposite limb to, to, to flex faster or constrain the opposite limb to flex faster. And then the extension response also has plantar flexion in it. And if you're plantar flexing just before ground contact, you know that the, the muscles around the ankle are, are active, the, the gastrocs are active in upright running, soleus in, in acceleration. So the it, it, it's not really an attractor itself, but it's a building block for so many different attractors um that you yeah that i I find myself working with a lot and it's it's an easy cue to for athletes to understand as well it's an easy element of running that's that's really easy to understand um for for athletes as well okay interesting so um it relates to i think people should go back and listen to my last podcast which has been released 
today. Um, I think this one will be released next Thursday. I, even, actually, I shouldn't even bother saying that because it just confuses people because they're not listening to all of them. Just the last one because uh, I just talked about swing phase, but related to what you're saying there, um, you're saying they don't recover the back leg the, from backside, like they don't recover that leg fast enough. And I, I spoke, someone in the question was like, what, what do you look at in the swing phase? And so from the backside, I'm looking at, um, are they getting hip flexion and knee flexion happening together to pull that leg yep. through? And then and dorsiflexion as well. And dorsiflexion, yeah. So triple mm-hmm. flexion there. And then at the front, at the front side, are they getting the swing leg retraction? So you're more, you're more likely to cue the, to cue the triple flexion to happen instead, rather than the swing leg retraction. Is that right? Yeah. Well, that that's the way. I, the, the reason why I do that is because it's a little bit more simple for the athlete to understand, for example, that cue of, of rip your heel to your hamstring, make sure your heel touches your hamstring. That, it's it's really easy to understand. Whereas swing leg retraction is going to change based on all like the, the exact timing of it, based on how much, for example, in when you're pitching a baseball, you've got swing leg retraction, mm-hmm. completely different look to when it, it's still swing leg retraction, but the joint angles are going to be completely different as to when you're running upright. So when you're running, for example, you've got this, in terminal swing phase, you've got the lower leg kicks out, which tens- tensions the hamstring, and then the hip will extend, which tensions rec fem, and right at the end, you've got plantar flexion as well. And in and it's very sort of that um, that action of that that it's, it's quite a like particular sequence, right? And the, and and the and it's very much based on muscle lengths and all sorts of things. So I find that this is just from coaching experience. I find that swing leg retraction emerges better when it's self-organized and rear leg recovery is something that you can cue consciously and people can get pretty mm-hmm. easily. It's not as particular a muscle. So I find um, I'll tend to cue the, the, the rear leg recovery, recovery more yeah. for those reasons. Cause you sometimes get people that'll have really powerful hip extension, but there was no, there was no knee extension prior to that. And that therefore the hamstrings aren't tensioned enough. And if you're, just cueing someone to push into the ground or something, they get really stompy. Whereas I find if you're cueing the lifting phase, they get yeah. more elastic, more bouncy because the that reflex obviously yeah. joins in. So yeah, it's um, going to improve. That's the, just a it's, tendency. Yeah, it's 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 going to improve the swing leg retraction. Definitely, cueing swing leg retraction is is tricky because it's like when is the exact moment that I need to start thinking about pulling back? That's very hard. Whereas, like, okay, just 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 pull that back leg through, recover that back leg. You don't need to think about like, will, yeah. the front leg will do it. Yeah. The one, the one thing with the heel to hamstring thing, which I want to clarify is because you will see people that don't recover the back leg. They don't, they don't actually flex the hip. They just bring their heel to their butt and the leg stays behind yep. them. Um, yeah. So that's, I think that's, so when you use that cue, do you ever see someone that does that where they actually do go into like a quad stretch instead of flexing the hip trail? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's um, that's you've just described my my running technique perfectly. There, absolutely. Yeah, prob- you got prob- that big... probably mine as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you got that, that big round pendulum at the back, right? Where the where where the heel will sort of you do that sort of butt flick, and then you'll drag that knee through. And it's almost like you're you're doing a hamstring curl, and then you're just dragging from your hip flexors, and it's real sort of it's that round pendulum technique. And absolutely, and sometimes. I know, for example, in in my running, the reason why uh, my biggest challenge is ankle stiffness as as a as an athletic profile. That's my sort of let's call it the gang leader, right? Which means that throughout stance phase, 
because I'm spending too long on the ground, that foot travels so far behind my hip that the recovery phase, the, the, the recovery phase becomes even harder. So um, sometimes people will do that and it's a result of poor ankle stiffness. And then, um, but, but also you can be quite, um, you can, you can, that's, so let's say you tell someone, oh, you know, I want you to sprint flat out and I want you to pull your heel, your hamstring as fast as you can. Sure. If they're still not doing it, they're still doing the butt flick. You, you've got all these other constraints. You can put a hurdle in the way you can do all sorts of stuff. Um, but also like you can also get further away from that part of the body in isolation as well. And if you, if you start adding constraints, so the reason why that big butt flick, butt flick action is so is an error is because it's unstable, right? It, it, it means you're not going to get any internal rotation of the stance leg. So you're not going to have tension on the glute max. So you, there's such a flow on effect. It's, it's unstable. So you could look at that and say, that's an unstable error. So instead of trying to cue the perfect joint angle, you could also just add instability to the whole pattern. You could run flat out and add overhead punches with the plate, or you could put an aqua bag on it or add rotations or something. And a lot of the time, if you add um, rotational movement to the upper body, like a halo or something with a plate, yeah. and the leg is still trailing out the back, then you're going to get this instant feedback where your legs tangle. And if an athlete is running and the legs tangle and they, yeah. kick, their, they kick their calf or something, that's that's instant feedback and guarantee they won't do it again. So that's such like, you know, I talk about walking on ice and you instantly brace. That's one of those moments where the feedback is so intrinsic, it's immediate that it has a it has a great learning effect on the athlete. So by introducing um, constraints elsewhere in the system, or again, if if that's the problem that they got the round pendulum technique, by introducing some kind of rotation in the upper body you're going to get rid of anything that is too unstable to deal with that. Um, and, 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 you know, a, a technique, a running technique where you pull that rear leg forward really fast um, and really aggressively, that's going to be fine dealing with these, um, the, these upper body rotations. So you're using constraints to allow that technique to emerge rather yeah. than, um, than obsessing over isolated joint angles. Yeah. hundred percent. I will be, I will be definitely, on the same page as you there before, like just as you were saying that i was just thinking i would go probably straight to the abs and, and try and yeah. get more get something else happened there because they 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 likely have like when you see that happening that that heel flicking off the butt they probably have like a big anterior pelvic tilt and the ribs totally. are flared up and the abs are just not doing what you want yeah. them to do so that's um that's that's what I would probably do there. I would probably do isolated pelvic yeah. tri- pelvis drills. To be honest, or, or changing the rib position as a like getting some internal rotation at the rib cage as a larger strategy to that. But that doesn't mean I wouldn't like have them doing running drills and stuff at the same time. It would just be well, yeah. it depend, depends on if they were injured or not. But um, but both of those things will be in my mind. I'm trying to change. I'm trying to change this by changing the length tension relationship at the abs. Very likely, yeah. It's a, it's a good example. It's a good opportunity to, to superset things as well because you might do a you might do an isolated um, spinal co-contraction drill or something you know some kind of some kind of drill that just purely works in the trunk and then superset that with with a seventy percent sprint with halos or something and and then you're you can almost the athletes can almost transfer the feeling that they had in that trunk drill into their run and there's a yeah. great way to get to get transfer there as well. Exactly, man, love it. Um, okay, so last question. Um, which I forgot to ask the last several guests is my <laughs> generic question, which is you're going to be on a desert island for a week. You can bring three people that you'd like to learn from with you. Um, 
Who is it? Um, I watched The Last Dance not that long ago, so I'm going to have to say Michael Jordan. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a AFL coach called Alastair Clarkson who is um, well, the uh, he's, he's still coaching now. Uh, definitely the the most successful coach of the modern era. Um, is a I think I'd love to spend a bit of time just figuring out how he approaches such a complex um, task of organizing entire like a uh, team of players. So I, I work privately like with coaches in, in quite a um, intimate setting, whereas kind of imagine the amount of, um, yeah, the amount of different issues that he has to deal with, but I uh, mad respect for, for the way that um, the way that he coaches. So Michael Jordan, Alistair Clarkson, and um, a player that I used to, again, sticking in AFL, but a player that I used to dislike playing a lot because I was a Hawthorne fan, but um, I've recently grown a lot of respect for as a, as a player called Joel Stelwood. Um, and again, like these aren't, he's, you know, he's not an academic or anyone, but he's um, very, uh, there's a lot of talk about about how he's sort of led the led the Geelong footy club to where they're at now. So, um, yeah, I'd have to, regretfully, I'd have to say Joel Stelwood. All right, man. Awesome. What, um, is there anywhere you'd like people to go to, to find you or check out your stuff? Um, yeah, sort of. Um, I guess mostly active on Instagram. So Harry Simington uh, with one M. That's uh, that's that's my Instagram handle. And um, actually, I'll, I'll tease something as well if you if you don't mind, David. I've got a um, yeah, man. Go first. Started a uh, start, just started an equipment company as well um, called Calibrate Sports. So um, oh, yeah. be launching in uh, December this year. So um, yeah, you can jump onto calibratesports.com.au or Calibrate what? Sports on Instagram. What kind of equipment? Um, so it's along the lines of what we've been talking about today. So um, equipment that, I guess, supports coaches who want to use dynamic systems um, or like uh, dynamic instability training in their in their practice um, and, uh, I guess, encourage. And the idea of the equipment is it's not just to have one piece of equipment for one exercise. It's sort of um, it's multi-applicable and it hopefully encourages creativity in coaches, which is something that I've, I think, forced. Um, forced to learn through through lockdown was um how creative you got to be sometimes so yeah a uh, bunch of little training aids and stuff that um that yeah i guess is hoping to help people um implement some of these um some of these ideas in their in their field-based training awesome man best of luck with it hope it goes well beautiful um, thank you and uh wait did you say are you in melbourne yeah yeah yep. yeah beautiful yeah. moment yeah i might uh, i might um i might catch you there i'm there in february so I might be able to catch yeah, you for yeah. coffee then. For sure. Yeah, the coffee's good down here. Have, I know. I was, I, I was, I, yeah, I lived in Sydney for three years, uh, but I was in Melbourne once I taught a workshop there. So we're going to go back and teach yep. a workshop in Jamie Smith's place in uh, Melbourne Strength. Oh, Culture. awesome. So yeah, Melbourne yeah. Oh, and then Sydney. Down. So I might catch you then, man. Yeah, beautiful. No, I'd love to catch up, mate. All right, Harry. Thank you. Hey, guys. David here again. I hope you really enjoyed that episode with Harry. I thought it was really really good i learned a lot gave me a lot to give me a lot to think about and um harry's actually going to do a presentation for our membership site dg interactive it's going to do about a 15 or 20 minute presentation on the hip lock so just taking one of the attractors explaining what it is um actually having some visual stuff there and how he trains it how he progresses it with clients and stuff like that so i'm i love the theory side of things but what makes the theory make sense for me is always seeing practical information um and putting those two together kind of makes you unstoppable in my opinion so that's going to go um into our guest presentation 
uh, section along with some of the other guests that have presented. So there's one from Tim Riley, a practical look at training the quads and delaying knee extension. There's one from Lee Taft on his 180 series. Ray Morris on high-speed running and sprinting from far field sports. Matt McInnes-Watson on plyometrics for a return to play. Jake Tura on patellar tendinopathy rehab. And then we're going to have Harry there as well on training the hip lock. So lots of good stuff just in the guest presentation section only. Most of them are very short videos where you watch it once, you know it forever. And that's what I want. And you you can watch it and then use implement it with some of your clients immediately so um so yeah if you like the episode and like some of the other episodes and would like to see little snippets or a bit more from some of those some of those guests then dj Arthur interactive is the place to be and um apart from that i'm going to see you next week for another episode of the world's best podcast dj interactive thanks for joining me chat to you guys soon <laughs>